0: You can open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Let's stop for prayer. Lord, as we come before you and as we continue, Father, our worship of you, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the book of Ecclesiastes and for all of the ponderings and the questions that are raised by Solomon. Father, we ask that you would continue to help us, Father, to take in this book and to begin to seek to think about the things that he brings up. That, Father, we would ponder our lives, that we would think about life in general. The Lord, that we would recognize the importance of the questions that are raised. That, Father, you would help us to see truly the emptiness of life without you. That, Father, we would come to understand the sense of meaninglessness and the sense of vanity. As Solomon describes here, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to continue to grow much more content in who we are in Christ. That, Lord, that we will have an understanding of all of the many wonderful things that our relationship with Christ brings to us. And so, Father, we ask as we continue our trek through chapter seven that, Lord, you will bless our time in this book. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 7, beginning in verse 11, it reads this way Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything... That will be after him. Now, some sections of chapter 7 at times, when you look at it, especially individually, it can be, it can be kind of confusing uh, trying to figure out what it is that he's trying to get at. So just kind of keep this in mind, that what Solomon is doing is here is he is dealing with some questions that he raised in the previous chapter. So turn back to chapter 6 and look at two verses where these questions are raised. It says, the more words, this is verse 11 and 12 of Ecclesiastes 6, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So Koheleth, remember that the term Koheleth, sometimes in your Bible is to say that it calls Solomon the preacher. And sometimes it's not, it's not always the quite the best word to use because we always think of a preacher in the context of what a preacher does today. Really, koheleth is a better word because primarily what he's, what he's doing is here. Solomon has kind of gathered all these things that he knows, gathered the, the wisdom of man. Remember that primarily what he's doing is he's approaching these issues and these questions based on what he's observed, and he's answering them By putting God on the back burner. He's not considering that aspect. In other words, can man on his own, autonomously, can he figure these things out? Of course, we already know the answer. The answer would be no. uh, Primarily because remember that for us, Christianity, we we would use this phrasing, Christianity is a revealed religion. This is not something that we went out and meditated on our own and kind of figured it out on our own. We don't have a founder that did that. You know, in Buddhism, uh, uh, Buddha was seeking enlightenment. And after he, you know, kind of got rid of a lot of things and he spent days and weeks and months and years in meditation, uh, the day came when he was enlightened. And so he kind of discovered these things. And just kind of as a side note, I don't know if you ever noticed this. You know, there's a lot of different types of statues of Buddha all around. Uh, and some people kind of have them for good luck, which there's no such thing. But anyway, they have them. But if you ever see a statue of Buddha, whether it's just the head or it's the whole thing, and, and when you look at the, the, the head, the, um, the head is kind of, uh, the hair looks like it's all curly, kind of like he has a weird kind of perm. Uh, well, just so you know, that's not what that is. But those little round things or curly curlicue things, those represent snails. And apparently, the, the, the time that he became enlightened, He had gone into a deep meditation, and he was so deep in meditation and so still that the snails crawled up his body and basically kind of infested his head, and he was unaware of it. And that was kind of like the moment before he became enlightened, and so that's kind of a celebration of that. So just so you know, uh, he might win a Trivia Pursuit game one day, Uh, except I doubt that's a question. But anyway... Uh, Nonetheless, that's, that's that's what that's about, is about him, you know, becoming enlightened. So the idea then, again, for us, is that we do not, what we believe did not come from some man or even a group of men just meditating and thinking about life and kind of conjuring up these things on their own. We have a revealed religion. God revealed himself to us. If he had not done that, we would not know him. And that's why we spend so much time focusing on the Bible. This is God's revelation to us. This is how we know the truth about God. God preserved the Bible through all of these centuries for us. He will continue to preserve the Bible for those who will come after us so they can receive what it is that God intends for man to know. And so, again, we believe in a revealed religion. Well, Solomon is approaching this right now as one who is not privy to that. And so that kind of helps us to kind of uh, understand the types of things that he says when you read through his book. So again, Kohelethon has observed, and he's argued, that it is outside of the purview of humankind to determine what is, in a sense, absolute good for themselves. He begins up asking the question, so what is good for man? What, what's going to bring us, or what is the greatest good? Or what's going to bring us the greatest happiness or contentment or what happened or what have you? So what is good cannot be determined by human beings by themselves. That's really always the message over and over again. So again, these questions that he asks here in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, they are to seek to motivate you and me to think more deeply about life and death and what good may be enjoyed. There remains, there does remain a sense of what we call relative good. Uh, Sometimes when we get in discussions with individuals, uh, someone may say, well, you know, I'm thankful for all the good that mankind does. What we need to understand as Christians, especially if you get into a debate with someone who wants to say, well, you know, let's just say that Sean is a flaming pagan. And so say, well, Sean does a lot of good. Say, well, Sean does a lot of things that are relatively good. Now, it's important to make that point. Why? Well, because many people do think this, that if Sean does a lot of good, which he does, that somehow that's going to earn him points or favor with God. Or it's going to earn him points or favor in the end. So if there is a judgment, or when there is a judgment, that will weigh in his favor. But well, what, what we know as believers is, it won't. But how much good he does, he would never be able to do what we call true good, or something that's purely good, to where God now owes him. Man, it's impossible for man to do that. So what we believe then is even though we may make statements that there is no good thing man does, most people don't understand that. So we want to help them understand what we're saying, uh, maybe even other believers. And so what we'll say is that we do believe that there is no good that man can do. Man can do things that are relatively good. So, they, so we're not denying that people do good or nice things for people. But it never measures up to the point or to, or to the degree that somehow now God owes them a favor or that God's now going to consider that uh, in the day of judgment because he, he doesn't consider that at all. So just kind of keep that in mind. So, th- there's a, so there is a sense of relative good. And Solomon wants to explore all those things. Uh, what is really good for man? What should man be doing uh, in light of the fact that he's going to die one day? Remember, he's brought that up. We've talked about that a great deal. Um, so again, the last part of verse 12 uh, that, we, that uh, we read, for who can tell what will be after him under the sun? Uh, what he's reminding us of is our limitation as human beings, our inability to know the future. That's why the question, who knows, who can tell? It's kind of a, a, double, a double question, and the answer is in the negative. No one knows, but God knows. And maybe you can add this, is God telling us? Now at that time, the answer is no. Again, is God leaving us some hints that man can discover on his own. So chapter 7 then, which we've been dealing with for a couple of weeks now, Koheleth begins with the subject of what is good or what is better for mankind. The first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 14, which we've looked at, attempts to answer the first question, who knows what is good for man during his life on earth? In fact, someone kind of suggested a a real brief outline for verses 1 through 14, that verses 1 through 7... He's basically telling us that serious living is better than uh, frivolity. In other words, reflecting on death is better than just having fun. So he's not against having fun. He's just saying that reflecting on death is better than just having fun. Verses 8 through 10, he's noted that patience is better than being in a hurry, or patience is better than haste. And then in verses 11 through 14, which we'll be touching on some of that today, he is observing that wisdom is better than prosperity, Or even when wisdom is combined with prosperity, wisdom is still a good thing, but it doesn't give us what it is that we're looking for. Again, in answer to the question in verse 12 of chapter 6, who knows what is good for man during his lifetime, during the few years of his feudal life? He's kind of continuing to build that list in verses 11 through 14. and so That's why he's talking about wisdom. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is valuable. Wisdom is beneficial. He's not saying that wisdom is as good as an inheritance. I think really what he's saying is that wisdom is beneficial, maybe especially so when it's held in connection with wealth. Remember, the Bible's view of wealth is wealth is not a bad thing. It's the love of money or the, or the idea that money is going to solve all of your problems. That, that's always the wrong way to go. It's going to lead you in the wrong direction. But money is not seen as being evil. However you describe or look at wealth, when you have wealth, and you know, we're not getting into who has more wealth than others, but when you have wealth, wealth is very beneficial. If you have wealth, you can what? You can feed your family. You can provide a safe home. You can provide clothing for them. All the k- kinds of things that wealth can bring. That, that's, there's a good thing with that. So if you have wisdom, having money or having wealth with that is a good thing then you can live by that wisdom and you can help others understand that wisdom. So uh, the idea then, Kyle and Delitz, that's kind of an old German commentary in the Old Testament. It's really very good, even though at times they can get kind of of wordy. Uh, But in commenting on this, they say this. They say, possessions pass from generation to generation at the death of the father. It, It is good and it may seem reliable because they are already in the hands of the family, but... Without wisdom in their use, they can be squandered or embezzled, and Kohalath has already warned us about that in, verse, in chapters 5 and 6. So again, knowledge and wisdom are good for man, not only with an inheritance, but in a sense it's superior to an inheritance. Wisdom preserves the lives of those who have it. An inheritance and money are good, but again, wisdom is superior and that it gives life to those who have it. Something that money cannot do. But even though it's true that wisdom may help keep a person alive, remember that wisdom, man's wisdom, in and of itself, will not bring meaning into your life. And it's not going to give you rest. It's not going to allow you to rest, to relax from the pressing questions of life. Which remember, that what he wants you to keep in mind is, what are the pressing questions of life? life is short we all face death death is coming because life is short and because death is coming then what is the meaning of all of this and what is the meaning of my life and then that then opens the door into then what is it that will bring me joy or deep happiness or a sense of satisfaction Those questions are are trying to to guide us, to herd us in that direction, and at the same time kind of apply pressure to us to be forced to think about those things. And so the individual who may have great wisdom, that wisdom in and of itself is not going to give you the answers to those questions. And of course, he's already pointed out to us earlier that wealth is not going to provide meaning for life. So then when you look at verse 13, then he says, for us to consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he, that's God, has made crooked? So here we are alluded to to the fact that man's, again, remember the fancy phrasing, autonomous epistemology. That means man trying to learn things on his own apart from God about the meaning of life. That's what we're dealing with. Autonomous epistemology has led him to this conclusion. Man, again, is unable to determine from traditional wisdom what is good for humans. Now, I was going to pause here for a moment. I'm really familiar with Buddhism just because of growing up in Hawaii and what have you. But when you look back at Buddhism and you look at this religion, that this man, he didn't just make it up because actually it's kind of an offspring of Hinduism. But anyway, the idea there with with Buddhism is that uh, if you want to achieve enlightenment, if you want to achieve, I guess if you want to use the word nirvana, the idea is, is to Uh, eliminate your attachment to all things. Now, some aspects of that can sound good, because we might agree, "Eh, we don't want to be too attached to our possessions. I don't want to be too attached to my house. It can lead to problems. But what people often don't recognize is what he meant and what he taught and what Buddhism teaches is that you want to eliminate all attachment. So some might take it a step further and say, oh yeah, if you are angry or if you are holding a grudge or there's you know, spitefulness in your life, absolutely, you want to be detached from those things. So again, there can, we can see some value, but that's not all that he taught. What it also says is there's something else that hinders us in being enlightened. And it's all attachments. And you know what the other one is? Love. If you're going to be a proper Buddhist and you're going to follow it like you're supposed to, no love. Now the idea is not that you're going to be mean to others because that's not the path to go either. But the idea is that if you love another and you're committed to them, that can prevent you from seeking your path to enlightenment. And so you need to then break that off, though it would be a great sacrifice to you and harm to you, and they don't even deal with what that might do to the other person. But the idea is is that it's going to hinder your path because it's all about really the individual. Uh, And so you want to eliminate all those things. I I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that I want a religion or life where there's no love. That's just not a good thing. There's too many people that I love that I know that love me that make life great. And if I didn't have... You know, I just think of my, my wife, my children, and my grandchildren, my parents, my sisters, then my sister's husband, then their kids, and we all love each other. That's awesome. And if all of that was eliminated from my life, man, that's, that's a bad place to be. I don't want to be in that place. But if you're going to be a proper Buddhist, that's really the, the direction we're going in. And that is not the direction that God is going and It's not the answers that we're going to come up from. So that would be in the, in the realm of traditional religion or, or traditional wisdom. So also remember that he's told us that achieving a good reputation or listening to the advice of a wise person or trying to discern why the present is worse than the past Or that money, again, is inadequate. It's an inadequate answer to the questions for what is good for human beings. All those things, trying to put those things into the position to help us to understand the kind of meaning that life has, that's like grasping smoke. You're not going to get it from grasping those things. We are told, and we're told this several times throughout the book, to enjoy the good in good times and to ponder God's work in adversity realizing that both of those things, the good and the bad, fall into this inscrutable divine plan or pattern of God. Which, as he says in verse 14, man does not know and he will not discover. Again, the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, what? Think. Think about what? God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, that suggests that man is on a search for something. And when these things happen, this man who's doing this considering, this thinking, he's searching for something. And he says here, he's not going to find it. He's not going to find it. Now again, God's not completely excluded from these reflections. The move, I think, through the book is is towards God. Again, from this position of autonomous epistemology, which is just not giving him anything, and he's frustrated by that. So we come again to this question, back up to verse 13, which is, so who can make straight what God has made crooked? What we need to recognize is the broken nature of reality. We experience this every day. If you're living in the real world, which we all do, and we encounter the real world, and we think about the real world, it's broken we should we should understand that it's broken. something is wrong everywhere. it's just it's a mess. It doesn't matter if a country is rich or poor. if a family it has has notoriety or no, it is a mess. We've been reminded of that over the past two weeks. the seemingly senseless suicide by individuals and we hear about it because they're famous, uh, but still you think. These individuals, they have money. There's really no limitation to what to do, whatever they want to do. They do have fame and maybe even the adoration or the respect of others. And then they do this. Why would they do that? We want to know what's going on. In fact, sometimes, and I do believe there's a little bit of intellectual dishonesty in the world, we don't want to deal with the moral spiritual aspects of life. And so what we want to say is, well, some people, you know, things go wrong with your brain and you just can't do this and do that and that then seems to be the way out. That is not the answer. That is not what happened. Man is broken, but it's not a broken brain. He's broken because man is at enmity with God and that affects us very deeply and very profoundly. And it is sad that at times, maybe more often than we want to admit, believers should recognize that, and they don't. When you hear that story, I don't know how you hear those things, but when I hear those things, when I hear about the um, Anthony who committed suicide this week, my very first thought is, well, he didn't know the Lord. And that is absolutely a major contributing factor to whatever was going on in his life. Yeah. Because no matter what he had, he could not find and he did not possess an understanding of what makes life meaningful. Because he had, it seemed, everything else, but he had nothing. Nothing at all. And what makes it even more tragic, because we, we recognize the importance of relationships, What's even more uh, perplexing to us is when individuals do that, and I think you had a 14-year-old daughter or something, and you're thinking, wait a minute. He had a, he had a child, a teenager? And he he does that? Something is wrong someplace. Something is definitely wrong with his thinking. But we should know why. What is Romans? Chapter 1 tells us that man knows that God exists and man presses down that knowledge. And when you read through Romans chapter 1, one of the things we need to remember is not only does man think evil things, and that's, that's, that's a profound impact from sin and the curse of sin, but even the way we think, or maybe we could say this, our inability to think soundly is affected by sin. So it doesn't mean that we become idiots. It doesn't mean that we can't, you know, pontificate on things philosophically. But at the same time, we we can't think. And we're unable to. So here we are told to be thinking about these things. The broken nature of reality. And what he's telling us here is God is the source of this enigma. There is nothing we can do on our own to straighten out what God has made crooked. And some people think, whoa, 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 time out. Bob, wait. What do you mean God is the source? Remember Genesis chapter 3. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And again, and to Adam, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Isaiah chapter 24, beginning in verse 5, the earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. The curse is our fault, but it's the Lord's doing. In response to man's sin, who then cursed the ground? It was God. God did that. And so God then, as he's pointing out, is the source of this enigma. God has, in a sense, blessed us with the inability to figure these things out on our own. Because if we could, who needs God? And what he wants us to know and to remind us in all these ways is that we desperately need him. Remember also some of the tragedies that have taken place. I think um, there was a uh, 40-year-old girl uh, from Richmond Hill. Remember, they, they were, she went to the emergency room, and they ended up discovering that she had leukemia, and three hours later, she was dead. Now, that was a, uh, that, from what I know, it's a Christian family, and so they're going to handle that much different than non well will. But what does that kind of thing, that, that kind of thing is not just some random thing. That's to remind us of what? The world's broken. This is not the way things are supposed to be. There's a reason why these things take place. Those are reminders to us. Those are signs to us, to mankind from God, that man is helpless and man needs the Lord. And yet you'll find that a majority of people, that's not where they're going to go with that. Remember Romans 8 that says that all of creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal to his children or reveal who his children really are, that all of creation was subjected to God's curse. But creation looks forward with anticipation, with hope, to the day when it will join God's children in freedom from death and decay. All of creation has been groaning like the pains of childbirth right up till this very day. So religion then deals with a reality beyond the reach of empiricism. Empiricism is simply this, that knowledge is derived from sense experience. That kind of goes back to um, this autonomous epistemology. The idea that man, through his senses, touch, smell, taste, hearing, seeing, that man can figure all things out through that. And that if you can't figure it out through the five senses, then you can't know that it's actually true for sure. Which, if you think about it, that statement then can't be true. Because I can't smell it, and I can't taste it. There's no way to empirically verify that statement. Nonetheless, this larger reality, again, this, what we believe, the, the truth of God, what we understand is going on behind what we see, which is revealed to us in Scripture, this larger reality, it doesn't manifest itself like in a laboratory It doesn't manifest itself reading the front page of various newspapers. Jesus Christ does not come down from the cross and confound his tormentors. God does not speak loudly from heaven in the most popular modern language for everyone to hear. doesn't do that. Empiricism enables Solomon and enables us to recognize and see that the world is bent and it's broken. But it cannot take us any further than that. No matter how hard we work at it. No matter how smart we get, no matter how great our technology, we can't get beyond that one thing. So we cannot make straight what God has made crooked. Only He can. And so what we have presented to us in Scripture, and this is what I want to leave you with today, is that God seeks to bring about, and it's a great Hebrew word. It's the word shalom. Normally in your Bible is this translated peace. That's not a bad translation is just not enough and there's no way to really kind of bring that out each time the word shalom is used in the Hebrew text so we have to kind of know going in really what's being presented to us here what's being discussed let me read to you a couple of uh uh, well actually more than a couple several different bible verses all of the uh references are there in your in your notes so you can just hear what it says Isaiah 52 verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, or it would be proclaims shalom, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace or shalom, I leave with you. My peace or my shalom, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then in John 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have, or that you may possess, shalom. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a translation called the Complete Jewish Bible. Romans 16.20 says this, And God, the source of shalom, will soon crush the adversary under your feet. So God is the source. God has revealed. God will give shalom. What we need only comes from him and through him. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, Always be humble, gentle, and patient, bearing with one another in love, and making every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the the unity of the Spirit gives through the binding power of shalom. So he's telling the believers that we are to be humble, we are to be uh, gentle with each other, we are to be patient with each other, we are to bear with each other in love, we are to make every effort to preserve the unity of the Christian body, and we are to do so through the binding power of shalom that God gives to us. So we possess this peace and it's through that that we're able to treat each other this way. There's a book that's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's written by a guy by the name of Cornelius Plantinga. uh, Written several years ago. He's a philosopher. He's a Christian. Um, He was I know for several years the head of the philosophical department at Notre Dame. Uh, Anyway, that's who he is. And he says this. The webbing together Of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. That's why when we talk about our salvation, it's more than just, I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. It's so much more than that. So listen again to what he says. The webbing together of God, human beings, and all of creation in justice and fulfillment and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace. But it means far more than just mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom is a rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens the door and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom is the way in which things ought to be. That's the future that awaits us. But we possess shalom in our lives now, and God desires that we share of it and live in it together. And as we then, if we flourish in that way, That is collectively a major part of our witness to the Lord and to the world. Look at what we possess. Come, you can be a part of this. The only way is the way of faith. It's by recognizing that you do not have shalom because of your sin and your separation from God. God offers this to us. He gives this to us. That is why we recognize that those outside the body of Christ, there's this misery there. Even those who have everything, there is misery, for some even to the point where they despair of life itself. Shalom is what God has made the world for, and that is the goal of God in redemption. It is the medicine to heal the sickening evils of creation. True understanding of the gospel requires a full disclosure of sin and brokenness. And Solomon, as we read through Ecclesiastes, relentlessly confronts us with that throughout Ecclesiastes. Over and over and over again, what do we see? There is no shalom. Man is not experiencing shalom. For all that man has, he doesn't have it. What is it that's going to bring man this peace? It's Christ. And so the question that you need to ask yourself is, do you possess that? Do you possess shalom? If you don't possess shalom, because you could have shalom in the midst of all kinds of trouble. Because it's that, it's that inner sense that's built on and given to us by the relationship we have with Jesus Christ provided, for by, provided by his spirit that lives in us. We then possess this wherever we go. Do you possess shalom? And do you possess shalom even now? In the midst of your life, do you possess shalom? shalom i trust the answer is yes if it's not yes if, it, if there's not a definitive yes to that question then you need the gospel of jesus christ christ coming and living that perfect sinless life is what was necessary to deal with what was broken in the world and he willingly took our sins upon himself he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross And to suffer punishment, the punishment that we deserve. He endured that for us. Knowing that we could never pay or atone for our own sins and survive. That would be an impossibility. We'd be obliterated. And he then was buried, as the scripture says, and rose again and offers to us this shalom. It's a gift. It cannot be earned in any way, shape, or form. And We embrace that by faith. We trust what God has said and what God has done through Christ. And if you embrace that, then you are at that moment adopted into God's family and you will possess shalom. And you will be among people who both possess and share shalom with each other. Who would not want that? I know I want that. I possess that and I thank God that I possess that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we bow before you this morning, we are grateful, Father, for the shalom that you have given to all those who have trusted in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for the times that we allow the world to overwhelm us and we ignore or don't avail ourselves of the shalom that you have given to each one of us. In fact, I pray, Lord, that for those believers here today who are not experiencing this, I pray, Father, that you would intensify whatever it is they're going through so they would recognize and realize that we have never had the ability to overcome or to deal with life on our own. And we, you didn't give us the ability to do it on our own when we became Christians. And that we entered into a partnership where you have promised to always be there for us and to provide us with everything we need. Father, we thank you for that pray, Lord, that you would drive us back once again to the cross. And Lord, if there are any here today who have not embraced the gospel of Christ and are experiencing to a very high degree the lack of shalom, we pray, Lord, they would see clearly that they will never, ever be able to even get close to what we possess because it can only be attained by receiving the gift you've given us. And I pray, Lord, that if they hesitate or if they put this off, we ask that in your kindness, but in your strength, you would intensify that sense of emptiness and lostness and dissatisfaction. That they would feel the frustration that Solomon is talking about here in chapter 7. That they would even long for the peace that we possess. We pray that in your kindness you would break them down. So they would be humbled and come to you, and turn to you, and embrace Christ and the work of Christ. Father, we thank you so much again for your great patience with us, and for giving to us, even now, allowing us to possess what we will possess for all of eternity. And that is shalom. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.